everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 213. Today's big Bible question, are non-Jewish Christians obligated to follow all of the commands of the Old Testament? Well, happy Tuesday, friends. By the time you're hearing this, my family and I will be Lord willing on our way to Fresno, California for a two-day little mini vacation staying at a socially distanced Airbnb and planning on doing some hiking and such in the lovely 105 degree weather. Yes, 105. We live in Salinas, California, and you'd expect it being Central California and only literally eight miles from the Pacific Ocean that it would be warm here. But honestly, it's really not. The weather's nice, but it rarely gets out of the 70s in July and highs around here are sometimes in the 60s. So Fresno is going to be interesting when it tops out at 105. Well, I apologize for that. Weather intros are among the worst. I'll try harder tomorrow. Today's Bible readings include Judges 12, Jeremiah 24, Acts 15, and Mark 10. Today's Bible question is a topic that we've already, already kind of covered, at least in part, But it's such a big and important question that I think it's okay to focus on it again and really again. When most Christians talk about the Bible, they are thinking about one big book that was written in ancient times that tells us about God and Jesus and his followers. Now, that's true. It's true in a lot of ways, of course. But it might just be too broad of an overview of something that's just so spectacular in the same way that describing the Niagara Falls as some water flowing over some rocks is accurate, but not nearly accurate enough to give you an idea as to what the Niagara Falls actually is. So the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by a vast multitude of different people from different perspectives and very different time periods. Most of the writers are Jewish, but at least one is a Gentile, which is Luke, And possibly the writer of Hebrews is also a Gentile, that is, if the writer of Hebrews is not Luke, which he might be. So in Acts 15, the apostles tackle an incredibly important question. Are non-Jews, or also known as Gentiles, required to obey all of the law of Moses? Well, let's read the passage and discover the answer. This is Acts chapter 15, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Some men came down from Judea, And began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did also to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? 
On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of uh, the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings! Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where you've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was also called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the answer that the First Apostolic Council came to was delivered to the non-Jewish or Gentile churches as a letter. And let's read it again, just so we really get it in mind. And the letter says, We have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. We have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, 
that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So the question being asked was, must Gentile Christians be circumcised and follow the law of Moses? Now, in biblical terms, basically any person that was not born in Israel or born to Jewish parents was considered a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Probably you're listening. If you're listening, you're a Gentile, although I would more than welcome some Jewish believers. Absolutely. But in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to be circumcised, every male. Now, this is an oft-repeated Old Testament command since the time of Abraham, and it was very, very critically important. This was not a tertiary issue that the apostles tackled here, but it was a primary one. They deliberated, they discussed, and they heard from the Holy Spirit as to their answer, which basically boiled down to bringing Four, four total different Old Testament commands forward. Number one, abstain from food knowingly offered to idols. Number two, do not consume blood. Number three, do not eat anything that was strangled to death. And I believe the reason for that is because meat that was strangled generally had all the blood still in it. And number four, do not commit sexual immorality. But the big thing I want you to focus on is verse 28, where it reads... It was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. Now, does this mean that Gentile non-Jewish Christians are no longer under the commands of the Old Testament except for those four things? I believe it most certainly does mean that, something that Paul makes explicitly clear in Romans 6.14. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's even made more clear in Galatians 3, 19-26. Why then was the law given, says Paul? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not for just one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not, for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now that's a meaty passage, but read it and reread it to grasp what Paul is saying. The law was given until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Before faith came, says Paul, we were all imprisoned by the law. The law was our guard, keeping us in prison, but only until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And since faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian of the law, if we are in Christ, that is. So Hebrews 7 tells us that the new covenant begun by Jesus and his sacrifice is better. And the old command in the old covenant was annulled. So Hebrews 7, 18 through 19 says, So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing, 
but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, Hebrews 8 continues to tell us that the new covenant obtained by Jesus is superior to the old, and the old covenant is now obsolete in passing away. So Hebrews 8, 6 through 8 says, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault, he says, well, let's read verse 13 of Hebrews 8 as well, which says this, By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. In other words, the first covenant is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away, says the writer of Hebrews in eight, chapter 8, verse 13. Now, some of you out there are rightly wondering about Jesus' comment that the law will not pass away, not even a jot or tittle of it. Well, let's look at that passage because it's very important for our discussion here. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, of course, I absolutely believe this passage, and I believe that the Bible teaches us that Jesus did accomplish all things and did fulfill the law in his perfect life of obedience and in his perfectly undeserved death on the cross. Jesus accomplished the purpose of the law and has begun a new covenant. Now, I love how the team over at gotquestions.org explains this, and this is what they say. Jesus came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In fact, the ceremony, sacrifices, and other elements of the old covenant were only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves, says Hebrews 10.1. The tabernacle and temple were holy places made with hands, but they were never meant to be permanent, but they were, quote, copies of the true things, says Hebrews 9.24. The law had a built-in expiration date, being filled as it was with external regulations applying until the time of the new order, says Hebrews 9.10. In his fulfillment of the law and prophets, Jesus obtained our eternal salvation. No more were priests required to offer sacrifices and enter the holy place, says Hebrews 10.8-14. Jesus has done that for us once and for all. By grace through faith, we are made right with God. As Colossians 2.14 says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, the article continues, There are some who argue that since Jesus did not abolish the law, then the law is still in effect and still binding on New Testament Christians. But Paul is clear that the believer in Christ is no longer under the law. Galatians 3.23-25 says, We were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are not under the Mosaic law, but under the law of Christ, says Galatians 6.2. So if the law is still binding on us today, then it has not yet accomplished its purpose. It has not been fulfilled. If the law as a legal system is still binding on us today, then Jesus was wrong in claiming to fulfill it, and his sacrifice on the cross was insufficient to save. Thank God, though, Jesus fulfilled the whole law. 
and now grants us his righteousness as a free gift. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So, are we still under the Old Covenant? I believe the testimony of Scripture over and over again, as clearly shown by this council in Acts chapter 15, the first Jerusalem council, it's clearly shown that that question was grappled with by the early apostles, and the Holy Spirit led them to the decision, which was, no, we are not still under the law aside from those four things that we've already mentioned. So let's continue reading Judges chapter 12, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The men of Ephraim were called together and crossed the Jordan to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, Why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your houses with you in it. Then Jephthah said to them, My people and I had a bitter conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you, but you didn't deliver me from their power. When I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord handed them over to me. Why then have you come today to get fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead. They fought and defeated Ephraim, because Ephraim had said, You Gileadites are Ephraimite fugitives in the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he answered no, they told him, Please say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce it correctly, they seized him and executed him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 from Ephraim died. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Ibsen, who was from Bethlehem, judged Israel after Jephthah and had 30 sons. He gave his 30 daughters in marriage to men outside the tribe and brought back 30 wives for his sons from outside the tribe. Ibsen judged Israel seven years, and when he died, he was buried in Bethlehem. Elon, who was from Zebulon, judged Israel after Ibsen. He judged Israel ten years, and when he died, he was buried in Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. After Elon, Abdon, son of Hillel, who was from Pirathon, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys. Abdon judged Israel eight years, and when he died, He was buried in Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 1. After King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported Jeconiah son of Jehoiakim king of Judah, the officials of Judah and the craftsmen and metalsmiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket contained very good figs like early figs, But the other basket contained very bad figs, so bad they were inedible. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs. The good figs are very good, but the bad figs are extremely bad, so bad they are inedible. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, so I regard as good the exiles from Judah I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will keep my eyes on them for their good and will return them to this land. I will build them up and not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, 
They will be my people and I will be their God because they will return to me with all their heart. But as for the bad figs, so bad they are inedible, this is what the Lord says. In this way, I will deal with King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem, those remaining in this land or living in the land of Egypt. I will make them an object of horror and a disaster to all the kingdoms of the earth, an example for disgrace, scorn, ridicule, and cursing wherever I have banished them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they have perished from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. Mark chapter 10 verse 1. Jesus set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to divorce papers and write them and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, 
We want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten disciples heard this, They began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high position act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, Son of David! Have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more. Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus in the road. Amen. Friends, may you and I see also and follow Jesus just like Bartimaeus. Good day to you and Godspeed.